Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome again to the Out of the Question podcast. It's February 1st, 2019. My name is Andrea Schwartz, and I'm here with my co-host, Steve Macias. Hi there, Andrea. Today, Steve, here's the question. And actually, this was a question that was sent in by a listener. So I was very excited to be able to deal with this person's question. The question is, how does the kingdom of God expand? Now, I had some theories, you might say, as what was the question behind that question? In other words, was this person asking, does the kingdom of God expand and I just don't see it? Am am I missing it somehow? Will we know? So, Steve, how does the kingdom of God expand? Well, I think we have to ask the other question of what is the kingdom itself? Now, we have in our world lots of different types of principalities and kingdoms and organizations But we have to go back to the question of what is the kingdom itself? And what is this thing that Jesus wanted to establish um, before we can see if it's expanding or not to see exactly what is the kingdom? All right. So I'm going to let you take a stab. What is the kingdom? All right. Well, I would say that the kingdom is wherever Christ's authority is proclaimed. So for us as Christians here in the year 2019, The kingdom is when the authority of Christ is proclaimed in the family. Uh, That's the kingdom. When the authority of Christ is proclaimed in the church, that's the kingdom. When the authority of Christ is proclaimed in any sphere, that's where we see the kingdom of God on earth. It's the authority, the crown rights of King Jesus being expressed here on this, uh, this time and this place. But you're not saying that the authority of Christ's kingdom doesn't prevail everywhere at all times. You're talking about specifically where it's being proclaimed, acknowledged, and lived out. Right. I mean, of course, scripturally, we have to believe the words of our Lord. You know, at the, begin- at the end of uh, Matthew 28, there at the Great Commission, he claims that all authority you know, has been given to him already. And so the kingdom, of course, in its power, its sovereignty, is already here and has been won through the cross and resurrection. And the the fact that he's seated at the right hand means he's already enthroned and currently reigning. Uh, But that kingdom and that authority is now being delegated and worked out in this world. It's a here and not yet situation. So we're not really unlike the apostles who prior to Jesus's death and resurrection had a view of what the kingdom was going to look like. And of course it looked like it had all failed because the king had been killed. Yeah, that's right. I'm sure they felt uh, that way right after the, right after the crucifixion, the, the king is dead. All that messianic prophecy about the reigning victorious King David I'm sure they thought it was all up in smoke. And I know I meet Christians today uh, who see the same thing about the Christian church or the Christian kingdom. They think that the progress of 
the pagans amongst us means the kingdom is, is disappearing. And I think the, uh, the interesting part, and it, it all depends on how you view things. You know, perspective means a lot and it has a lot of bearing. And if you don't have a biblical world and life view and you don't take God's word as it's plainly given, like all authority on he- in heaven and earth has been given unto me, therefore, or if God be for you, who can be against you? Or the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If, if you have this, yeah, but that's not what we're seeing now, or that's not happening now, and that's going to be some high into the future, then you're going to have clouded vision. But if you put on the glasses of scripture, then I think it's imperative that we see the kingdom of God expand because we have to operate our vision based on the faith as proclaimed in God's word. That's absolutely right. It is certainly a perspective thing. And if you put those, those goggles on uh, that say that Christ is already presently reigning, you begin to interpret the reality around you differently. I mean, without that, uh, you can easily look at the current events of the last year or the last 10 years or even the last 100 years and start to have a pessimistic view of history. I know we've talked about people who look at the Second World War or even uh, the AIDS epidemic or the rise of homosexuality and abortion, and suddenly they have this view that suddenly the world's the worst it's ever been. But once you put on those scripture goggles and widen your perspective, you can see uh, poverty is nothing today compared to what it was during the time of Christ. Literacy rates, you know, all these different advances of human civilization are a matter of perspective. Um, that we have to rightly look at. And it's a wrong perspective to say these happened independently of King Jesus. In other words, there's not this whole realm of advancement, progress, and technology that somehow or other gets attributed someplace else because with the world and life view of humanism, everything is chance, everything is random. Yet the world and life view of the Bible is that things are progressing to the culmination of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's right. That that history is also personal. You know, it's related around that person and his life. What I think is interesting about the timeline of progression is in the evolutionary or humanistic worldview, the world is really, to them, you know, billions of years old, if not, you know, endlessly going back in time. But they think somehow that there's a possibility of progress inside of there that somehow for millions of years, there's no progress, but through the happenstance of history through chance, like you said, 2000 years ago, Western civilization began to change. It is a bizarre worldview that completely ignores the data on the table. And I think today we have a benefit and a detriment. We can know about things that are happening all over the world that Similar things were probably happening, but everybody didn't know about it because we didn't have telephones or we didn't have television or we didn't have the internet. So to claim that everything is more terrible now than it's ever been, you might just be more aware of things that are happening that you wouldn't have had access to before. So it's not even a fair metric to say it's worse. That's right. But by the same token, you and I are not in the same room right now. We're not in the same city right now, and yet technology is allowing us to have a conversation that's recorded that can then be shared later on. 
So if we're not going to attribute that to Jesus Christ, then we really are serving a different world and life view and have a different God other than the God of the Bible. That's absolutely right. And I think it goes back to uh, that authority of the kingdom. Throughout Christian history, we have seen individuals take those technologies, not just what we're using today, but whether it was the written word. Think about the the happenstance of history that St. Paul and Christ were able to use the Greek language and communicate to all of the Western world through Roman media, uh, roads and uh, government. There's just so much history here and development of history that is in favor of a positive view of progress in Christian history. I mean, you fast forward that through uh, the development of Christian universities and healthcare, through the Christian advent of the printing press, the distribution of the Holy Scripture, and there is a certain correlation between Christian advancement of technology for the purposes of the gospel that this propagation of the story of Jesus coincides with the advancement of every human act of flourishing. And it wasn't happenstance, it was God's foreordination and his provision and his providence that had those Roman roads ready for Paul to go on his journeys. Well, or even, it's not happenstance that, that the synagogues throughout the Near East were speaking Greek because of the uh, providence of Alexander the Great coming through just a few a uh, few years before Christ and conquering these lands and, and making it possible that they would be able to communicate. <laughs> right. So having this language that apparently I'm, I haven't really studied Greek, but apparently Greek is such a rich language that it was the perfect language in terms of communicating certain nuances that other languages don't have. That wasn't happenstance. Right. No, it's, it's certainly true. And even the language itself, this idea of communication coming together, uh, points to the positive progression of history, right? In our Old Testament, we read about the confusion of languages, but yet with Christ, we see what's happening amongst mankind is the reversal of that, of that uh, Tower of Babel incident. Not only are Christ's people able to hear the message in Greek and Latin and Hebrew and Aramaic, but the day of Pentecost, when the kingdom is unleashed on the apostles, the sign that is given is everybody hears in their own language. This reversal of the curse, this movement towards a positive Christian history. And the last 2,000 years have been humans flourishing and communicating uh, to the point now today that you can basically take your smartphone into any country and communicate with any group of people. Exactly. And think about it, that just the opportunity to be educated with an accurate view of history, of science, the importance of Christian education, as opposed to a secular education, is that the Christian education is looking at all these various manifestations of God's creative works within the biblical framework. So quite apart from all the negative, nasty, ugly, vile, perverted things that are discussed and, and, and fostered at a public school, those kids are not learning the truth. Consequently, they may have high test scores, but it's very hard to call them educated. That's right, right. And what they do know is borrowed capital from the Christian worldview that's kind of left over uh, 
ideas and education that will eventually run out because there's no foundation for it. What's interesting for the kingdom, I think, going back to that topic, is when people try to measure where the kingdom is, I think what they measure it against is where they start to get pessimistic. You can't look at the, the details and facts of the history and get confused. But if you measure the kingdom by the wrong standard, right, whether that's trying to equate the kingdom's growth with your political party or trying to equate the kingdom's growth with your particular denomination or the kingdom's growth with your particular theological camp, then I think you can fall into some you know, pessimism and begin to see that the kingdom is failing in your particular area because your vision of what the kingdom is is more narrow than what Christ envisioned. All right. Now, there's a series that goes back now 30 years that I first read. Um, it's written by a Christian married couple, Karen and David Maines. And it's a trilogy. And the first part is Tales of the Kingdom. The second part is Tales of the Resistance. And the third part is Tales of the Restoration. And whereas it's an allegory in the truest sense, and whereas I wouldn't say necessarily every theological point is exactly where it should be, but one of the, the blessings of the book, and I first read it myself, then I read it to my children, and then when my husband, I said, you have to hear this, and he didn't think he'd have time to read it, so I would read it to him. So I really know these books because I read them aloud a lot. But within the book, there is a challenge to people in terms of being able to share their sightings. And sightings are times where you saw the king. And I won't go into how the king manifests himself too much, but sometimes he manifests himself as a beggar and you don't know that the, that's the king dressed up as a beggar or the king is, you know, in his majesty and his robes and you see him as the king. But what everybody was supposed to do, and we started doing this as a family and with other believers we were in touch with, we started sharing our sightings, kind of like I was just about to run out of gas and it was a safe place for me to pull over and someone I knew was there and he'd just been able to help me, and I wasn't late for my appointment, or I really needed to find a parking space because we had to get someplace, and all of a sudden, there's the parking space open, and people started relating their sightings. And it's amazing, if that's your point of view, that you start seeing things with a whole different light, and you start thanking God for the parking space, or not running out of gas on the freeway where we could have gotten really badly hit or the tree fell down and it fell down right in front of me and it never hit me and other things maybe of not so great a magnitude. And I, I think it's a good practice to relate where you saw God in action. I agree. Certainly so. So today, based on when we're having this conversation, there are very, very, ugly laws coming out of various states, not necessarily more ugly with killing a baby in the womb at four weeks or, you know, 10 weeks. Now they're actually talking about killing babies on the way out when nobody previously had any sort of disagreement that these were children. And I, I have heard people, I'm sure you have too, being so dismayed. Look at how awful it is. And yet yes. I think back on what Rushduni said in many of his books over time when he said humanism is dying. 
And I think if we look at it from the point of view, can you imagine the boldness of talking to a population that many of them have given birth and or they witness people giving birth? It's so hard to call it right anymore that God has given us an opportunity. His enemies are digging their own hole, falling into it. And we've got to be ready to say, when people are dismayed, let me tell you the truth, whether it's transgenderism, when now it hits them home and now their son wants to be a girl or their daughter wants to be a boy. If we are ready with the message of the gospel and and proclaiming God's law and what justice is and what it's not, this this is a great boon to the kingdom because we have people now who are ready to listen. That's right. And I think you hit on it when you said that this other movement, this secular humanism is also dying. When we talk about the advancement of the kingdom or the power of the kingdom, I think it's important for us to recognize that the victory is is certainly promised, but that our Lord gives us little glimpses into how the victory will be achieved as well. Here in Los Altos, where our school and church is, the cover of our weekly newspaper was a protest or rally or celebration, whatever you'd like to call it, in remembrance of Roe v. Wade. And I couldn't help but remark that here in Los Altos, a very affluent area, the cover picture is seven 70-year-old or 80-year-old women, uh, gray hair, holding signs that say, happy birthday, Roe v. Wade, right? That's, that's what's representative of their view. It's these old women. <laughs> and then such a comparison here in our school where we have, you know, 100 kids under 10 praying for the unborn. This is the certainty of our future, that those of us who are faithful to the calling, they will, they've aborted their next generation to fight for that value. They are now just yelling into the wind. We are training up the next generation so that they will stand against such an evil. So it's just a matter of time before uh, the numbers go against them and the knowledge goes against them. And like you said, they're digging their own grave. They're a dying movement. Right. I just wrote a blog piece that will be posted somewhat soon. What makes us different than the enemies of God? Well, there are some politicians and there are some CEOs that are telling conservative pro-life Christians You're not welcome here. Well, what makes us different as believers is that we welcome everyone because, you know, rather than being insulted that I might be considered a deplorable, I'm much worse than they think apart from Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm a deplorable. You're a deplorable. Everyone's a deplorable until such time as Jesus pays the price for our sins. And when we have the Holy Spirit, Deep down inside, but greater hope is that the wicked would repent. That's right. And that's what makes us different. We're told to love our enemies. And in circumstances like this, what does that mean? It doesn't mean let them run all over you. It means proclaim the law of God, proclaim the kingdom of God, as you said, and then demonstrate it doesn't have to, your end does not have to be this. If you embrace the fact that you're a sinner who can't pay for your own sin. And so I think we have a tremendous opportunity right now. And I hope people start seizing it and saying, 
you know, the Bible says and not worry about whether someone agrees with the Bible. That's right. That's right. And, you know, when we talk about expanding the kingdom, we need to look at how Christ expanded the kingdom in the face of the enemies or in the face of demons. I mean, he first he gives us the promise that there's a certain authority to us, but not just the authority of the kingdom, but the authority to trample scorpions, and the authority to hold serpents, the authority over demons. Uh, and he certainly shows that in his own gospel. Uh, I think it's Mark 5. I'm thinking of the occurrence with the demoniac, right? The, the idea that Christ, when he comes into a village that is pagan, right? They have this, this pagan man in the graveyard and these pagan Jews raising pigs. Uh, Christ has a certain authority to proclaim his truth and his presence and chase all of that away. And that's not just limited to his person, but he has shared it with anybody who takes his name through baptism and proclaims his kingdom. And I think that's a really important point. Why baptism is, you know, there's some religious orientations or denominations that don't baptize children. And I, we, we, this is not the place to have that discussion, whether that's right or wrong. But you'd be amazed at how many people I talk to who are well past the age where they don't understand and they still have not been baptized. And they're like, why is it necessary? Well, why is anything necessary? This is a public proclamation of who you identify with, who you are, uh, whose family you're a member of. And rather than be sheepish about it, we should be very open about it because it's as our light shines that others are drawn. When you cover your light, you don't look any different than anybody else who's walking around with no light. And, you know, it goes back to uh, those institutions of the family. You know, we have at the center of, of God's universe, the family, the mother and the father, as this kind of base fortress for the kingdom. And the mother and family train up the little soldiers. They have the, the new recruits built out from their little fortress. And then they're baptized and sent out into the you know, institutions. Rushdoony would often talk about sending them off into the church as kind of an outpost for the kingdom of God. And so the, ch the children and the families go from their household into the church, and the church is to be facing towards the world, uh, an, an outpost for the kingdom that the gates of hell cannot prevail against, right? This aggressive, world-facing organization. And that's one of the ways the kingdom expands, is us having strong families who are sending our families out to challenge and change the world through the church, through our ministries, uh, through our service, through our vocations. Uh, everyday life is expanding those outposts of the kingdom. And it doesn't mean, when we think of the church, we shouldn't think of the church as a building. We should think of the church as the congregation of the faithful. But then when we go to our regular meetings, when we don't refrain from meeting with each other, is where we're encouraged, where we're exhorted, where we're built up to go out and take dominion in Jesus' name. All we have to be concerned about is being faithful. God determines how things are, what the outcome is going to be. That's right. And here's another place where our idea of measuring the progress or the size or the expansion of the kingdom can get lost. You know, many of us look at the number of people in a church 
and we think maybe that's some metric by, by which we can understand the kingdom. Or we even see very large churches you know, with thousands of attendants, but there's no faithful preaching there. There's no expansion of the kingdom because it's so superficial or antinomian. Uh, and so rather than get caught up on, again, denominational or institutional ideas of the kingdom, recognizing that the kingdom itself is related to Christ's authority and that we don't need to be concerned, as you said, with the numbers in the church, but their faithfulness to God's law and obedience to his commandments. And always focusing on that which is before you. So you're an educator, you're the headmaster of a school, you're the priest of a congregation. Being concerned about what you're supposed to do in an area where you have no expertise, no opportunity, that's not your area. So we need to do more than occupy where we are. We need to advance. And the way we do that is to be faithful within our calling and not be so concerned whether we're talking to one, 20, 20,000, or 2 million. The truth is when you're talking in a smaller group one-on-one, you really have the opportunity to make disciples because Jesus said, make disciples. He didn't say make converts. He didn't say, you know, have your tally sheet and say how many people walked forward. He said, make disciples, which means people who are ready to go out and replicate this other places. That's right. And again, another trap for measuring the expansion of the kingdom. You know, I was at a, a fundraising dinner over the summer and I had a great time with this organization who told me that every time they do an event they have tens of thousands of people show up and and like you said add to their tally sheet they make their conversions they put their hand in the air they say i've converted to christ and so they can boast about having you know thousands of of names on their list but i sit there and i think well if i had 100 or, or if i had 50 people who are committed to the law of God. Imagine the impact we can make. And so let's not get caught up in these expansion of the kingdom through numbers, but focus on what you said, discipleship. And too much of our efforts are focused on what's not really expansion of the kingdom. It's transferring from Presbyterian to Anglican or from Reformed Baptist to Presbyterian or or from the church down the street to my church. This transfer of, of movement from church to church. That's not kingdom expansion. Kingdom expansion is when we are going out to those who have not heard or who have not obeyed or have not listened and discipling those, uh, welcoming them into the bigger kingdom. So I think what people often want to know, what can I do? I'd be more than willing to join something if there was something for me to join. And I would like to see guilds set up again call them Gideon gills, (laughs) you know, because then you're not necessarily trying to get huge numbers. But what would it be like if those who understood the theonomic reconstructionist point of view, who were medical professionals, nurses, or doctors, or teachers, Christians who are in public schools right now, or contractors, or any number of things, and they sought out and made available opportunities for people who are in the same field to talk about the challenges of being faithful in that field and exhorting each other 
and helping each other and giving someone a suggestion, okay, this is how I maneuvered that, I think we would see real growth because they'd be operating where God has placed them. And I think that you are on the right topic there. Uh, but we have to be careful not to, to have real guilds and not ghettos, right? This has been done uh, throughout history where, or in recent history, where American Christians have tried to group together, you know, all the best Christian musicians or the best Christian television stations. And what they end up getting is less than the best. It's more important to have a, a cross logo on it than to be the best. And so it goes back to uh, doing the best at your particular vocation. You know, Christian physicians and Christian in any vocation should be the best because if they're serving uh, Christ, he will give them the best foundation of knowledge and information that the Christian serving their vocation as God called them is going to be the best in their particular field. I think this is especially true in education, but for us to get to a place where we have guilds, we have to think that these things are important. We have to have a vision that says, this is the direction we're going and we're going to be the best no matter what. We're going to strive and sacrifice and make sure that we're the best. And those guilds will form around the world recognizing that we have those answers because we put in the sweat equity, the financial contribution, the time uh, to make sure that we were offering the world our best. I remember my, my husband has been in car sales most of our married life and we were converted and he was positive that he could not be faithful to God's word and be a car salesman. He thought that these were mutually exclusive things because no other opportunities arose. He continued to do that because he had to support his family. And I remember once being at a Bible study and sitting next to a woman. And as women tend to do, we chatted, what did you know? Where do you live? Where are you from? What does your husband do? And her husband was a car salesman. And I was like, really? Is your husband a Christian? And she said, oh, yes. And it turned out this was the couple that introduced us to the writings of R.J. Rushduni and Calcedon. And he was a mentor in the very truest sense to my husband, saying, absolutely, you can be a Christian. Be honest. Deal with integrity. The, the, the enterprise of being a salesman doesn't mean you have to lie. And so this is, you know, we're close to 40 years that this is what my husband is doing. And by God's grace, every place he goes, it's not always that he's the top salesman, but he's often, at least in his younger years, was definitely among them. And people wanted to know, because they would know he wouldn't lie. He would make that really obvious. He wouldn't do it. They'd want to know, what's your success? And his answer was, I pray. I pray when I'm dealing with people that this is what God wants for them. It's the right thing. And nine times out of 10, they'd go, no, come on. What is it you really do? Now, okay, you're just not going to tell us. We get it. And he'd go, no, I pray. That's what I do. And if there have been times where he looks back and he saw that maybe he gained an advantage and he shouldn't have, well, then he figures out a way to make restitution to that particular customer or whatever it is. So there isn't a field where you can't apply God's word unless the very nature of the field is anti-God, anti-God's law. So I don't think you can be a godly embezzler. I don't think that's something that anybody could or should strive for because the whole 
action of embezzling is contrary to God's law. Sure, sure. But going back to even something, something like marketing cars, he's trying to serve a need and his Christian values and principles will allow him to be the best at serving that need. And at the end, it's not those gimmicks and sneaking you know, lemon cars into people's garages that wins out the customers at the end. It's those who actually care and serve and meet their needs who end up being the best salesman at the end. So Christian values, again, uh, always trump, especially in things like marketing, where the best sales are those who serve the needs the best. But the Christian values for the kingdom, this idea of expanding the kingdom through our vocations, I think that we should go back to the idea of small beginnings, right? If you look at Christ's picture of how the kingdom expands, of how the kingdom grows, for some reason, even though he's king of the universe, you know, even though he controls and orchestrates legions of angels and <laughs> has power over Satan and demons, even though he himself created it all through just a few words, somehow he felt it was appropriate that to compare the growth of the kingdom to a tiny mustard seed. I don't think that was him condescending to us to say, don't worry if you can't do too much, but rather saying that each of us have a part in the kingdom, that it begins with you, even a mustard seed, to build and expand the kingdom, that there is not one single person who has an excuse for why their life is not expanding the kingdom of God here on earth. I mean, even the prayer that Christ gives us, modeling, we, children, adults, elderly, are called to pray for the kingdom to come, to expand it, no matter where we are, who we are. And we're basically saying, when we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, we're saying, may your law permeate our life. May your love permeate our life so that we can go out and then share that. And so there's not this contradiction between the law and the gospel. They go hand in hand. There is no good news if you don't understand the bad news that we all experience because we violated God's law. That's right. That's right. Any suggestions you have for people who would like to um, maybe dig into this subject a little bit more? Well, if you want to get a picture of how Dr. Rushdeny saw the kingdom, he actually has a small book. Uh, it's his commentary on Daniel called Thy Kingdom Come, where it gives this vision of how Old Testament believers viewed the eschatological church, how the church would come and fulfill all the prophecies made not just uh, to the church, but made throughout the centuries from Abraham all throughout the generations, that they would receive this world as a promise. So certainly recommend Thy Kingdom Come. One that I would recommend is Salvation and Godly Rule, because it gives, those are, it's a fairly good-sized book that deals with um, the aspect of that as the people of God, we're expected to reign here on earth. And if you don't fulfill that which God has called you to do, then you're on the wrong side. It's not like we have this option to advance the kingdom. It's a command. That's right. And not just a command uh, to advance it, but to seek the kingdom, right? That we actually can't find anything else unless we seek the kingdom first. And so there's no hope or salvation or prosperity outside of first seeking the kingdom. 
and to continue what Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as has been pointed out, a synonym for righteousness there is justice. So if we're going to embrace justice, it's got to be on God's terms. So why is abortion wrong? Because God's law says man can't take life unless it's within certain parameters where God says the life should be taken in the case of capital crimes. We don't have to talk about how sweet and innocent these babies are, which is true. They, they didn't do anything to the people who want to kill them. But the reason it's wrong is because it goes against God's justice. That's right. And to close, I just want to give an encouragement really to our listeners who look around the world and, and find the current events distressing. You know, maybe you've listened to this entire talk and thought, well, it's nice to say nice ideas theologically, but the reality is quite different. Well, the reality is that when Christ came into this world, that's when all of Satan's legion of demons came to alive. Now, you look throughout the entire Old Testament, there's no appearance of Satan's uh, minions coming out and possessing people and causing things. But suddenly, when Christ comes out in those Gospels, that's when all of Satan's work comes out. So here in this world, when we see things getting worse, when we see things getting more crazy and dangerous and evil, that's a sign that Satan is rebelling against the advancement and the expansion of the kingdom. We should take those as Christ having victory and Satan in his desperate attempts to cling to any sense of authority. And since we know intellectually and as we read the scripture that our side, God's side wins, that means that rather than be concerned whether we see it in our lifetime, how great is it to know that you're on the winning side and if God be for you, who can be against you? Amen. Well, thank you, Steve. Listeners, if you have suggestions or requests for things that we might discuss in the future, feel free to contact us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And we hope you do share these recordings with other people. Hopefully, that will be part and parcel of expanding the kingdom. Thank you, Andrea. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.